What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris and it's super good to be back with you. Especially for those of you who are primarily listeners of the Bible Prophecy Talk podcast. It's been a really long time since we've talked. And um, one of the reasons for that I discussed on on the previous Nowhere to Run podcast that I just felt kind of burned out with Bible prophecy and and especially after the the last book, False Christ, was released. And I just felt I had said a lot of the stuff I wanted to say, and I didn't feel like I needed to say anything more. And because I felt like I didn't need to say anything, I just didn't want to say anything. So so I kind of took a break from, from Bible prophecy stuff. But I do feel like that's changing. I'm really excited about um, Bible prophecy again with some particular areas that we're going to get into in this podcast, but uh, we'll explain more of that later. First, though, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff I've been doing in the meantime. Uh, In lieu of doing podcasts, I've put out three videos recently. I've been trying to work on my video editing chops, learn some new techniques and things I have been wanting to try. Uh, I think video editing is is, uh, an art that can be really helpful with teaching, and so I wanted to make sure I was getting better at it, not worse at it. So so let me discuss some of these videos. The first was one called How to Get Out of a Spiritual Slump with a Keystone Habit. And that was basically describing the importance of prayer, the importance of making prayer a regular habit, some really practical ways to do that, and the benefits of doing that, and some other tips and tricks, I guess you could say, into making it a reality in your life, some stuff that I've been really passionate about recently. So um, that's there, the, the how to get out of a spiritual slump with the keystone habit. Um, also, the next one I put out was the Gospel is Good News Kinetic Typography Sermon Jam. This was my first attempt at kinetic typography, which is a, a genre that I've really loved and I think is so helpful. It's really helped me in the past, especially when it's related to uh, Christian topics uh, mingled with music and sermons and things like that called sermon jams. It's been a really popular thing. Those have tremendously helped me in the past and I wanted to take a stab at it for myself. So uh, that required a lot of learning of after effects and a lot of stuff there that I really felt like was uh, just 
just a great experience. So if you want to check out my attempt at uh, a sermon jam, a kinetic typography sermon jam, check out The Gospel is Good News at the website NowhereToRunRadio.com. The third and last one I put out was one that I had been meaning to put out for a long time, but because of my aforementioned burnout with all things Bible prophecy, I, I just kind of left on the drawing room floor, which was turning a particular chapter of the latest book, False Christ, into a video, the chapter called, Will the Antichrist Be an Assyrian? So it's uh, uh, discussing some of the argumentation put forward by proponents of the Islamic Antichrist theory about how the Antichrist, or how uh, the Bible, they claim, says the Antichrist will be an Assyrian, and kind of refuting those notions using their arguments and I felt like the video was necessary because a lot of the, even if you just listened to it or, or even read it, it would uh, not have the kind of teaching power that a video would, of being able to really see what I'm trying to say with that. So, and And also I wanted to do that because it kind of dovetails into what I've been getting excited about regarding Bible prophecy lately. So I think we'll just kind of transition from this into the meat of this podcast. So, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the repercussions of, of some of the theories that I've expressed in, in, in books and videos and so on, particularly the idea that the Antichrist will present himself as the Jewish Messiah, and that his, uh, in order to to solidify that uh, position, to make people believe that he's the Jewish Messiah, he of course has to do the things that both Jews and Christians are wanting the Messiah to do, namely destroy the Muslim world. And, of course, we see a picture of that uh, in the not very widely discussed Daniel 11, 40 through 45, and etc., and other places um, in the Bible. So if the Antichrist is planning on destroying the Muslim world in order to look like uh, the the Jewish and Christian Messiah, what we expect him to be, then, of course, the the deception is is targeting Christians, not the rest of the world. Anyway, the point is is that if any of that is true, then it it's a great danger to believe that the Antichrist will be Islamic, because we would be therefore be in danger of falling directly into the Antichrist's plan, which is that he's going to use that in order to convince people that he's the real deal, when in fact he's not the real deal, which we would be so willing to do if we truly believe that the that the enemy and the Antichrist that is the Muslim world. In other words, the Islamic Antichrist theory is extremely dangerous if what I'm saying is true. And so I keep bouncing it around thinking... Well, that's a big if, you know. I mean, I, of course, think it's true, but a lot of people think what they believe about the end times is true, too. I mean, there's bookshelves of people that have ridiculous views about the end times, um, and I'm sure they have all kinds of passions about, well, if this is true, then X, Y, and Z must be done, you know. So I'm always aware of that, that I could be just another book on a shelf that isn't correct. But I need to be also reasonable that if it is true, and that requires a lot of thinking about it and double-checking my facts on the whole thing. And I've done that and really think, man, this is, uh, you know, even if it's all, even if I've got a lot of other stuff wrong and maybe went 
you know, a little overboard on some other issues. The core concept seems to be rock solid, which means that still that we're right at the same place that the Islamic Antichrist view is extremely dangerous for Christians to fall into, and there's nothing being done about it. I mean, there is nobody blowing that horn. So, anyway, that's what I decided that I I would like to do something about, to do something substantive about it, something that explains it well. So, anyway, let's move on to what I want to talk about in this podcast. So, the first step I wanted to take was dealing with Islamic eschatology, what people in Islam believe about the end times. Now, anybody that's familiar with the Islamic Antichrist view will probably also be familiar with what I'm about to say, but I need to kind of reiterate it for those of you that may not know. This is a really important idea, that idea that in in the Islamic version of the end times, they have some prominent figures. The Mahdi, of course, and the sort of Joel Rosenberg kind of idea. He's the, the guy that is, is going to be the Antichrist. The, the Mahdi in Islam is kind of just a regular kind of political military leader that's going to conquer the world uh, and make Islam the, the main uh, religion, and he's going to rule for between seven and nine years and the rest of it. And then after, you know, during, after he shows up at some point and rules for a while and conquers some people, then the Antichrist, what they call the Dajjal, will show up. And then um, after the Dajjal shows up, when the Mahdi is about to go to war and do some other stuff, then Isa shows up, which is the Muslim version of Jesus. And then Jesus is going to destroy the Dajjal and the rest of it. There's, there's these three main figures. So the the concept in the Islamic Antichrist theory is that the Mahdi in Islamic eschatology is the Antichrist. And that Isa, the Muslim version of Jesus, is the false prophet. And the Dajjal, the Muslim version of the Antichrist, is the real Jesus. Um, The Dajjal, of course... Uh, the word Amishit Ad-Dajjal means the false Messiah. This is a guy that the Islamic people believe is going to be uh, the Messiah to the Jews, going to be convince them that he's the Messiah and stuff like that. And you know, people like uh, Jill Richardson say that, that, that that's going to be, we should embrace that guy who does that because he's going to be the real Jesus. So anyway, that's the basic idea. And you have to admit it's kind of seductive because here you've got a guy that is uh, the the Mahdi, for instance, that is got kind of a sidekick in a sense with the Muslim Jesus, who in a sense he's subordinate to only in the fact that he lets the Mahdi, I I won't go into it, but really he's not subordinate to him. Jesus is the one that actually rules and whatnot. But the the point is, is that they see these two guys side by side in, in what clearly would be a really bad thing for Christians if these guys really did any of this stuff, like made the world Muslim and, and the rest of it conquered Christians, well, that's bad news. And here's a duo that's doing it, which is just so seductive to just simply say, well, that's the false prophet and the Antichrist. So because of that dual nature of the the sidekick thing, it's really easy to sort of force it into the Antichrist false prophet idea. And there's lots of other 
little things about it, but but that that idea of of kind of putting the characters of Islamic eschatology into the characters of Christian eschatology is a major, major selling point of the Islamic Antichrist theory. In fact, uh, Joel Richardson's first few books only dealt with the comparisons of Islamic eschatology and Christian eschatology. It wasn't until later when he wrote Mideast Beast that that he actually tried to give a biblical explanation of why we should even, from the Bible, expect an Islamic Antichrist, which uh, is a whole other topic that I'll be dealing with later. But my point here is simply that his first thing is to show, hey, look, doesn't the Islamic Mahdi and and Dajjal and Isa look a lot like the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the return of the real Christ? I don't think it does, but that's the whole thing. And that's actually what got me interested in the Islamic Antichrist theory many years ago was not any argument from scripture, but rather somebody telling me about, hey, didn't you ever hear about the Mahdi and and Isa? It does not look like the false prophet and the Antichrist. So it's a major selling point is my point. So I knew I was going to have to deal with this. and, And I was so surprised with what I found, because what I found was much more interesting than I thought it would be. Now, in the book False Christ, I dealt with this a little bit. And my argument in that book was simply that, look, this isn't really that spectacular. There's really not that many things that are interesting in this comparison of the two end times beliefs, because all the Islamic people are really doing is looking at Christian eschatology and changing the word from Christian to Muslim. I mean, it's really not too much more complicated than that. Islamic eschatology, of course, was really written after the Quran, for the most part, in what's known as the Hadith. All the stuff we're talking about, the Dajjal, the, the, the Mahdi, etc., that stuff is all post-Quran. In the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries, they uh, came up with something called the Hadith, which are supposedly sayings of Muhammad. These are things like, oh, John heard Mary say that uh, that Muhammad once said thus and thus and thus. So these are supposedly sayings that Muhammad said at some point. And the hadiths are huge. There's so many hadiths. In fact, the and, and a lot of them are spurious or, or, or obviously uh, somebody just trying to force some kind of political or other motivation into it. Even the Muslims... Uh, will will tell you that of the whatever 60,000 or so hadiths that are out there, um, only, I think it's six or 7,000 of them are even correct. The rest are forgeries and wrong and have other spurious motivations and so on. So even they admit about, what is that, like 53,000 hadiths are wrong and the rest of them are okay. But anyway, my point is that hadith is stuff which is written in the 600, 700, 800s, really up into the 1,000 mark, the first millennium after Christ, these things were written. Uh, and the point, one of the points, I suppose, is that that the people who wrote these hadiths, we know their names and stuff. And these are guys who are like really into Christian literature. In other words, even at the time of the Quran, 600-something A.D., Stuff like the Book of Revelation was like old news. Everybody knew about the Book of Revelation and stuff like that. I mean, the people who wrote these things well into the 600, 700, 800s, 
and whatnot, these guys knew about what the Christians believed about the end times. They just knew it. And so they looked at what the Christians were saying about the end times and said, oh, yeah, that stuff's going to happen. Because, of course, the Quran basically says the stuff in the Bible is true. You know, they'll talk to you about Noah and Adam and and Jesus even and Mary. I mean, the the Quran is like accepts that the what the Bible says is, is true, even the stuff in Revelation or whatever. But it's not. But they believe that it's been corrupted. Right. So. They they say, oh, yeah, it's true, but let me tell you what it really says. And what it really says is always, you know, that Muslim, you know, Islam is really the true religion. So they change things around to make Islam the true religion. So in the book False Christ, I said, look, they're just looking, the writers of the Hadith were just looking at what Christians believed about the end times, changing the word from Christian to Muslim. And when you do that, it looks really scary because here, instead of, uh, you know, Jesus coming back and, 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 you know, essentially creating a Christian world, he's coming back and created a Muslim world. And that looks really scary if you change the names, but nothing more significant than that is happening. So that was the basic premise I had in False Christ. And while that's still true, there is way, way more to it than I ever would have guessed. And here's the thesis of basically what I'm about to say, and we're going to get into much more detail about it. But this is the thesis that Islamic eschatology in the hadiths and the hadith and other stuff that they they wrote that constitutes what Muslims currently believe about the end times all that stuff has been stolen has been totally ripped off from uh medieval Syriac pseudepigrapha and apocryphal apocalyptic literature okay let me unpack what i just said and maybe explain it a little bit. Let's first start off with what is uh, pseudo, the pseudepigrapha? What, what, what does that mean? This is basically kind of think of like the Gospel of Thomas is a really famous one. That's a, a, a pseudepigrapha in the sense that it really wasn't written by Thomas and nobody thinks it was. The Gnostics had a bunch of uh, of this kind of stuff. The Gospel of Thomas, of course, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. They weren't written by Peter, Mary, Judas, or, or Thomas, and everybody knows it. But that's only a certain kind of genre of pseudepigrapha. This is the Gnostics who were trying to sell their own kind of religion, if you will, and they did so by faking and acting like, uh, oh, this is what Thomas really said, this is what Peter really said, this is what you know Judas really said, and it's theologically completely different than anything that we what that came before it. Um. But that it doesn't stop with the Gnostics. The genre of pseudepigrapha uh, is like became a huge deal and influenced so many people's thoughts about Christianity in the early days. And it, it I mean, I'm talking about this is a, a huge thing. It, it, people were writing these these documents and putting names of people like in the Old Testament. Oh, this was. Uh, uh, Zechariah that wrote this, or Zephaniah that wrote this, and we call that, you know, pseudo-Zephaniah, or, uh, because obviously Zephaniah didn't write it, and the rest of it, and there's a bunch of this stuff, but there's another sub-genre of pseudepigrapha called apocalyptic pseudepigrapha. Th- this is writings that uh, appeared way after the fact, that were claimed to be written by either apostles, or you know, prophets of the Old Testament, or whatever, but obviously really weren't. But they take the form of like the book of Revelation. They are in in kind of structure and intent. They sound like the book of Revelation. These are things like the apocalypse of 
uh, uh, Peter or the Apocalypse of Daniel, the Syriac version or whatever. There's all these Apocalypse of Ephraim and the Apocalypse of whatever. And they kind of take the form of the book of Revelation, but they are pseudepigraphal and they are not uh, uh, and, and in whatever. So this is a genre that was really, really widespread. But if you even narrow it down further to the pseudepigraphal writings that were written in Syria uh, in the Middle Ages, particularly around the 700, 800, 900 mark, right around the time when the Hadiths were being written for the first time in and around Syria, by the way, because Syria was sort of a hotbed for Christian and, uh, you know, the whole Damascus area was, you know, Christian and, and Muslim thought, uh, scholarly thought was all kind of intermingled during that time in that area where this is where the whole concept of the Mahdi and the Dajjal first appeared out of that area. But that area at that time was awash with a particular genre of pseudepigraphal, apocryphal, apocalyptic works, uh, like, for example, Pseudo-Methodius and the Apocalypse of Daniel and Pseudo-Ephraim and Pseudo-Barak. These they were sometimes called Barak too. These These are some of the very prominent... Uh, pseudepigraphal works at that time that were prevalent in the thought of uh, both Christians and Muslims in that area and beyond, because these were bestsellers. You also have to understand that they the people believed that this was true. Um, first of all, people had apparently very little you know biblical knowledge in order to say no, that's not true because the Bible says so- something else. But um, it was really hard to prove that this really wasn't written by Daniel. You know, today we have things like um, textual criticism and carbon dating and all kinds of stuff that somebody comes to you today with something hot off the presses and says, hey, I just found this under a rock in a cave. I think Daniel the, the prophet wrote it back in the day. And it talks about the Romans and everything. Isn't this crazy? And you read it and you're, you don't have any really good reason to say Daniel didn't write this. You know, the scholars weren't doing the kind of stuff that they are today to kind of prove that wrong. Although, you know, people still knew if they really cared to look, but the majority of the population found it very difficult to naysay some of this stuff. And therefore, the apocalyptic views of the world at that time in that area really considered this particular genre of of apocalyptic Christian literature to be true, to be exactly what was going to happen in the end times, even though it describes a whole bunch of stuff that we've never heard of as students of real prophecy, a whole bunch of like details about you know, what's going to happen? The Antichrist is going to do this and he's going to look like this and whatever. You're like, where are they getting this stuff? And it was just commonly believed because of the the the, uh, uh, the power of this apocalyptic literature in Syria at the time. Okay, that's a little background about about that. And what I'm about to explain is that this, some of these particular, um, these particular uh, documents were studied and plagiarized just wholesale uh, from the writers of the Hadith and applied to their Islamic uh, eschatology. And so one of the processes that I want to do right now is demystify Islamic eschatology to show you without a doubt its roots um, in the apocalyptic literature in Syria at this time and to and we'll we'll go on from there. So let me start off by by just showing some of of what I mean. 
I think one place to start is with the Gog-Magog war in Islamic tradition and the apocalyptic literature, Christian literature in Syria at the time. Um, now, we know about the Gog-Magog war more or less uh, pretty completely from the Bible, but when you read both the apocalyptic Christian literature and the hadiths about the Gog-Magog war, you find elements that you just don't find anywhere else, but are amazingly similar to one another. So I think one of the place to, places to start is, let's read some of the Christian apocalyptic literature uh, from about the Gog-Magog War, and uh, then we'll kind of go from there. I'll read from Pseudo-Methodius. This was composed around 660 to 680 uh, AD in Syria. And this is uh, uh, what they said. It says, here now, in true fashion, now, first of all, by the way, it's going to kind of take a little long route to get to the Gog-Magog War, but uh, you'll see why I am doing this as we progress. Here now, then, in true fashion, how these four empires were joined, the Ethiopian with the Macedonian and the Greek with the Roman. They are the four winds that move the great sea. Philip, the Macedonian, was the father of Alexander and took the wife Chuseth the daughter of King Paul of Ethiopia, from her was born Alexander. Now, this is obviously talking about Alexander the Great, who was made ruler of the Greeks. He, was founded, he founded Alexandria the Great and reigned 19 years. <clears throat> he went to the east and killed Darius, king of the Medes. He was the ruler of many regions and cities, and he destroyed the earth. He even went as far as the sea, which he called the region of the sun, where he beheld unclean races of horrible appearance. He gave orders and gathered them all together with their women and children and all their villages, leading them away from the east. He restrained them with, uh, restrained them with threats until they entered the northern lands where there is no way in or out from east to west to visit them. Alexander prayed to God without interruption, and he heard his prayer. The Lord God gave command to the two mountains, which are called the breasts of the north, and they came together to within twelve cubits. Alexander built bronze gates and covered them with unmixed bitmen, so that if anyone wished to force them open by steel or by metal or, or, or to melt them with fire, he would be able to do neither, but immediately every fire would be extinguished. Who are the nations and kings that Alexander concealed in the north? Gog and Magog, Angog and Agag, Ashchez, Defar, and Patani, and Libyi, Inui, Farazi, Declami, Zaramate, Thebuli, Samartiani, Charakini. It goes on, and there's a huge list of these names I can't pronounce. And then it says, uh, the 22 kings lived enclosed within the gates that Alexander made. Okay, so we're getting a sense here that it's talking about Alexander the Great. Uh, in the past, he had, there was these unruly people that, uh, that were, you know, just terrible people that were destroying all the locals and stuff and whatever. And so he prays to God and God gives him this plan. There's these two mountains he calls the breasts of the north here that are close together. 
they're close enough together that he can stuff all these people behind these uh, these mountains where uh, there's no way out from you have to go through this little pass between these two mountains or they can't get out. And so then he builds uh, this bronze gate and then covers it with uh, tar or whatever. And then and then no one can to get past these gates. And that's and so therefore he traps Gog and Magog behind these gates now, the apocalyptic literature here and other places talks about how in the end times, God is going to allow these gates to be breached and the war of Gog and Magog will uh, begin. I'll read a little from another Christian, apocaly- the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Ephraim, and just to read a little bit more to, to understand this. It says, then since, then, since wickedness will be rampant upon the earth, the Lord's wrath will then stir up kings and mighty armies. For when he seeks to expunge it from the earth, he sends out humans against humans to annihilate one another. Truly, at that time, he will summon the kings and the mighty armies who are behind those gates, which Alexander fashioned. Many rulers and peoples remain behind the gates. They took toward heaven and call upon the name of God that the Lord send his sign from within his heaven of glory and the divine voice summon them who are by those gates, so that they suddenly break down and collapse at the command of the divinity. Numerous armies issue forth, as many as the stars which cannot be counted, as multitudinous as the sands of the sea, and exceeding the number of the stars in the sky. A full span was consumed from the lower crossbar. They issued forth, moving and spilling forth from there, kings and large armies, and every people and language group emerging from behind those gates, Gog and Magog and Nul and Agag, kings and mighty armies, Tagarma, Ashkenaz, Depar, Pule, Lubie, Osmatare, Galamio, Alab, a whole bunch of names I can't pronounce. The same kind of situation, a bunch of crazy names nobody's ever heard of. Some of them have recourse to Ezekiel 38 and 39, but most of them do not. And so he names all these uh, different places and this goes on, Apocalypse of Pseudo-Ephraim, to describe in great detail all the stuff these that Gog Magog is going to do. They're going to, you know, just kill people and eat babies and just do crazy stuff. Okay, so that's that's the apocalyptic Christian literature about Gog Magog. Something to do with Alexander and Gates and, and building these gates between these two mountains and the rest of it. So let's move on to read what... Um, Islam believes in the Hadiths about Gog Magog. This is, uh, uh, one Hadith says the following. Gog and Magog are two groups of Turks descended from Yafith, Japheth, the father of the Turks, one of the sons of Noah. At the time of Abraham, there was a king called Dul Karnain. He performed Tawaf around the Kaaba with Abraham when he first built it. He believed and followed him. Dulkarnion was a good man and a great king. Allah gave him great power, and he ruled from east to west. He held sway over all kings and countries, and traveled far and wide in both east and west. He traveled eastwards until he reached a pass between two mountains, through which, uh, through which people were coming out. They did not understand anything because they were so isolated. They were Gog and Magog. They were spreading corruption through the earth and harming the people, so the people sought help from Dul Karnion. They asked him to build a barrier between them and Gog and Magog. He asked them to build it, so together they built a barrier by mixing iron, copper, and tar. 
by the way, if you mix iron and copper, you get bronze, and then tar is, so it's the exact same, you know, materials at the exact same gate between two mountains from a king that traveled from the east and west, and even as far as uh, Gog Magog to the east. But anyway, let me continue. Thus, dual Carnion restrained Gog and Magog behind the barrier. They tried to penetrate the barrier or to climb over it, but to no avail. They could not succeed because the barrier is so huge and smooth. They began to dig, and they have been digging for centuries. They will continue to do so until the time when Allah decrees that they come out. At that time, the barrier will collapse, and Gog Magog will rush out in all directions, spreading corruption, uprooting plants, killing people. When Jesus prays against them, Allah will send a kind of worm in the napes of their necks, and they will be killed by it. Okay, so there's lots of other hadiths that basically describe the same thing. Gog and Magog are behind some gates. Uh, the gates are between two mountains that were built by this uh, great king, Dulcarnia. Now, I shouldn't have to explain too much to you to say, hey, this is the exact same thing with some names changed. This Dulcarnion is clearly the Alexander of the uh, other apocalyptic literature. And this is not uh, my personal opinion. I mean, scholars have long known that Dulcarnion was, uh, was a direct ripoff of Alexander the Great. And even some Muslims will fess up to this. But this is a really difficult thing for them to fess up to. And they usually come up with all kinds of things like, oh, Dulcarnion... He, he isn't really, you know, he, he's a king that you don't know of. It's a different king. Don't worry about that. It's similar, but it's a totally different story. But it's pretty darn obvious that it's not. Now, I want to back up. I don't, at the risk of getting too involved in the minutia here, I want to say that this particular story has its roots somewhere else. Um, way before either Pseudo-Methodius or Pseudo-Ephraim was written, there was something called the Romances of Alexander, or the Alexandrian Romances. This is a fictional tale of tales about Alexander. They were even popular shortly after Alexander's day. Uh, they were, you know, fanciful Alexander, you know, talking with cyclopses and defeating dragons and, you know, just stuff that, that is clearly, you know, has nothing to do with anything that Alexander did. But they were really popular at the time, very popular, in fact. And much later on, a lot of people started taking the Alexandrian romances and sort of applying them to their different, you know, uh, motifs. So when the Christians got a hold of the Alexander, Alexandrian romances, they added elements like, oh, the people behind the gates that, Al that Alexander built in these romances was really Gog and Magog. Hence stuff like Pseudo-Ephraim and Methodius, who were, who were already stealing from the Alexandrian romances. So, in other words, this stuff was that the Christians, quote-unquote Christians, stole from the Alexandrian romances, was then stolen, their version of that was stolen by the writers of the Hadith about Gog Magog, because this was extremely popular and widely believed truth about the end times in Syriac Christianity and in the 600s, 700s, and 800s. This was what they thought was going to happen. So I don't need to go into too much detail. That should be pretty obvious, that this is a wholesale stealing with some of the ideas changed and whatnot to better suit uh, whether they're Christian or whether they're Muslim. And I'm just hitting the highlights here. There's a lot more to this, but I want to 
kind of convince you of this by showing you some of the obvious ones. Another thing that we'll talk about is the physical descriptions of the Dajjal in the Hadith. Of course, the Dajjal is the, the Muslim version of the Antichrist. And uh, even the fact that the Masjid al-Dajjal, the false messiah, is in the Hadith described as you know, a, a Jewish guy that tries to convince the Jews that he's the messiah. Even that idea in itself was you know, ripped wholesale, if you will, from the, the apocalyptic Syrian literature, which made no bones about the Antichrist being a Jewish guy who would try to convince the world that he was the true Jewish messiah. So there's just that the concept of the Antichrist being a Jewish messiah in in the hadith in itself is a rip off but but uh nevertheless what i want to talk about is some of the specifics so if you know anything about the the characteristics of the dajjal one of the primary things that any muslim will tell you if you ask them hey what's the dajjal going to be like what what do you what do you know about the dajjal probably one of the first things out of their mouth is that he's going to be blind in one eye and it's going to look like a bulging out grape and his other eye is going to have something going on with it, too. Something about his eyes, one of them was going to look like a bulging out grape. This is just, anytime you look up the Dijal or pictures of the Dijal, that's what you're going to see. One of his eyes is bulging out like a grape. Let me read some of the hadiths about this. Ad-Dajjal is blind in the right eye, and his eye looks like a bulging out grape. Now, there's lots of other uh, hadith about this. As I said, it's really prominent. So you're going to see lots of different things about this. Um... Let's see, quote, uh, he has a huge body, red complexion, curly hair, blind in one eye. His eye looks like a protruding out grape. By the way, this idea of the huge body, I mean, we could, I can quote some other stuff from this, but just going to focus on the eye right now. And there was a little bit of confusion because some of the Hadith talks about his left eye being messed up. And so it's clarified that both of the eyes have something wrong with them. And so in another hadith, it says, his right eye will be punctured. This is uh, apparently the one that is going to be like a grape. And his left eye would be raised to his forehead and will be sparkling like a star. Okay, so we've got one eye sparkling like a star, one eye being punctured in this particular case. So something's going wrong with his eyes. Either it's a grape, and the other one's something like a star. Okay. I don't know, you don't know, but where did they get this from? And they got it from the apocalyptic literature in Syria that was written at the same time, or before this was written, just before. Let me read some of the stuff from the apocalyptic literature. Um, Apocalypse of Ezra says the form of, uh, this is talking about the Antichrist now, this is Christian of, you know ideas about what the Antichrist will be like. The form of the face of him was as a field, his right eye as the morning star, the other one that quaileth not. Okay, so we we got the exact same thing, looking like a star in one of the eyes and one of them that quaileth not. Uh, again, let's read from the Midrash about Armelus. This is a vision of Daniel, quote-unquote. We read, he shall be bald-headed with a small and a large eye in that particular one. Um, Another one is from the so-called Apocalypse of the Syrian Apocalypse of Daniel. And this one, it says, his eyes will be like the star which rises in the morning. 
his right eye will be like a lion's. Okay, there's, you know, we don't really know what that means necessarily. He goes on to sort of give some monstrous characteristics of it. But here we see the two motifs that are important. We see a blind eye that quaileth not, and the other one sparkling like a star, or as the Apocalypse of Daniel has it, like a star which rises in the morning. That is, I mean, if you can't see the connection between that and the descriptions of the other of of the Dijal and the Islamic character, then it's uh, difficult to really progress here. But it should be pretty obvious. You got one eye that's protruding and the other eye that's sparkling like a, a star. The same uh, phrases and the same kind of words used to describe the Antichrist in the apocalyptic literature. Now, if that was just it, it would be interesting. But in these same documents that we read about this eye in the Christian literature, the Christian apocalyptic literature, which says the Antichrist is going to have one starry eye and one blind eye, um, if you read a little further down, you'll be more interested. Like, for example, in the Apocalypse of Daniel, the Syriac Apocalypse of Daniel, it goes on to say, after talking about the eye, it says, uh, you know, his right hand will be four and a half feet long. He's going to be long face, long nose, and disorderly. Here it is, and he ha- and he also has upon his forehead three letters, A K T, and the A signifies I deny, the K I completely reject, and the T the de- the befouled dragon. Okay, so the Antichrist, according to the Apocalypse of Daniel, has three letters on his head, A K and T, and they signify basically I deny. And I completely reject. Now, first of all, in this Christian literature, they're they're clearly borrowing something from the true prophecy in in, in Revelation about uh, there are going to be there's going to be something on people's foreheads. The number six six six. Technically, it's not three. I mean, it's distinct characters. It's one character, six hundred and sixty six. Not three sixes, but one number. 666. And it's not in the real stuff. It's not on the Antichrist's forehead either. It's on the people that the Antichrist marks. It's his mark that he puts on other people's foreheads. From the Bible, we don't know anything about anything being on the Antichrist's forehead himself. Certainly not three letters. And certainly we are never told in the Bible that the meaning of, of of the mark of the beast is I deny or I completely reject. In other words, I'm trying to say that these elements in the Christian apocalyptic literature about this mark on the Antichrist's forehead, these three letters and all this other stuff, has nothing to do with the Bible. So when in a minute we're going to see that the Hadiths basically ripped this off, they couldn't have got it from the Bible. I mean, this doesn't come from anywhere else except this stuff. I mean, you can't get this idea from the Bible, this extra-biblical stuff from the Bible, so they had to get it from somewhere, and we're going to see where they get it from. So let's read a little bit about um, what the Islamic people believe the uh, Dijal will have on his forehead. It says, quote, On his forehead are the letters K-F-R, Kafir. Okay, so first of all, they've got, uh, I need to explain this a little bit. It's kind of weird, don't you think, that in the same document that we learn about the eye being starry and the other one being uh, blind somehow, in that same document of the Apocalypse of Daniel, which has a lot of uh, connection to the uh, uh, pseudo methodists by the way, and, and some other pseudo ephraim and whatnot, 
they are uh, quoting essentially that the Dajjal has one eye blind and one eye starry. They're also using the three letters concept, except they change the letters from AKT or whatever to K, F, and R. So it's different, a different three letters. But here's the interesting thing, that they changed the letters, but they did so to mean the same thing that the Christian apocalyptic literature told us that those three letters mean, which is I deny and I reject. The word kafir, which they say, if you take out the vowels from kafir, you get K, F, and R. And the word kafir is kind of like, uh, it's the word used if a person, it means to reject or deny. And it's used in the sense of, of when a person rejects Islam and denies Islam, even though they, they know Islam is true, yet they reject it. That's kafir. So if you, if you kind of look at it like the apocalyptic literature saying A, K, and T, for whatever reason means I deny and I, I reject, in the apocalyptic Christian literature, there's no possible way you could think of that A and K means to deny or reject. They just sort of expect it's kind of like being spooky or esoteric. Oh, didn't you know that A somehow means to deny and K means to reject? They're just sort of trying to be cool. But the is when the Islamic people stole it and used it for their uh, hadith about what's on the Dajjal's forehead, they actually changed the letters to actually give some semblance of meaning. K, F, and R, if you take out the vowels, can mean kafir, which means to not deny or reject. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, so, so I think that that is kind of showing the point here, that they are uh, stealing uh, from this completely wrong apocalyptic literature of the Christians in a lot of ways. One of the most important of these ways, I think, um, is with the Mahdi. Now, we could go on and we could talk about a lot of nitpicky things and show how the Hadiths are stealing from the apocalyptic literature, and I plan on investigating this a lot further because I'm quite honestly having a lot of fun with it, but um, one of the most important things, and one of the things that's got me the most excited is with regard to the Mahdi himself. The Mahdi has, in the past, given me a little bit of trouble in trying to figure out, you know, where did they come up with this idea of this Mahdi figure? Because it's not as simple as saying, well, the Mahdi is their uh, Islamic version of the return of Jesus, who, you know, makes everything right and all this other stuff. Because And they just switch the names, like I talked about earlier. Because they already have a return of Jesus. And... You know, Isa, in, in, if you really study what he does in Islamic eschatology, he actually really does all the things that the Bible says Jesus will do, in a sense. I mean, he um, is the one that ultimately rules over the restored thing when everything is settled and it's all over. But that's much later in this es- in the Islamic eschatology. But way before him is, or not way before, but before him is the Mahdi, who is an explicitly you know, regular king whose primary goal is to uh, conquer people with the expressed purpose of restoring uh, Islam. And he only rules for a relatively short time, between seven and nine years. And he doesn't really do a whole lot of that. And then once he gets, you know, once he confronts the Dajjal uh, later on in Jerusalem, he kind of lets go. He abdicates and, you know, lets Isa handle the whole thing. So there's not there's not anything in the Bible that would suggest well where are they getting this guy from did they just you know make him up wholesale 
until now. Now I think I understand where they're getting this guy from. And of course, it is from these Syrian apocalyptic literature. At the exact same time that they were coming up with the Hadith about the Mahdi, the first ever mentions of the Mahdi, was at the time when uh, the apocalyptic literature, such as in primarily things like Pseudo-Methodius, which was widely popular and obviously read by the Muslims. This was the one that we read earlier about how the gates of Alexander and you know all that whole thing. They clearly ripped that off wholesale. They were aware of this. But Pseudo-Methodius uh, and others propose a totally new character for the end times that, of course, the Bible has nothing to do with, never mentions. And this guy is the last Roman emperor. And he achieved, as one paper by Andras Kraft uh, in his paper called The Last Roman Emperor and the Mahdi, he says the last Roman emperor in this apocalyptic literature of the Christians achieved near canonical status at the time. That is to say that everybody just believed this was how the end times were going to happen, even though, of course, the Bible said nothing about this guy. So they came up with a new end times character. And this new end times character became like super popular. It was the the way the end times are going to play out at that time. And so we already saw that Pseudo-Methodius, for example, was taken extremely seriously by the Muslims since they totally copied the Gog-Magog thing and the Gates of Alexander from it. And so they naturally also copied this last Roman emperor, but did their normal thing, which is switching the name. So instead of a Roman king uh, restoring Christianity, he's a Muslim king restoring Islam. And if you make that one switch, all the other details are exactly the same. And so this new end times character became what we now know of as the Mahdi. And the timeline of this whole thing is similar too. So, for example, this Rome, last Roman emperor, if you read Pseudo-Methodius and the others, he's just, uh, you know, he shows up before uh, the, the Antichrist shows up. And he shows up before Gog Magog starts. And he shows up before all this other stuff. He's kind of like the, the, the precursor to a lot of this stuff. And if you read about the Mahdi, he also shows up before the Dajjal and shows up before Gog Magog. And the timeline of the wars and who he fights and how those wars play out and everything, it's all very, 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 very obviously um, the same. Even down to things like how long he rules. And Pseudo-Methodius, it talks about how it's going to be like a week, which is seven years plus another half and basically somewhere around nine years or something like that. And if you read the Hadiths about how long the Mahdi is going to rule, it's going to be between seven and nine years. They can't quite get there. There's different Hadiths that say nine years. There's some that say seven. And if you read the Pseudo-Methodius, you can see why they're kind of bouncing back and forth because it kind of says it in a sort of esoteric way in Pseudo-Methodius. I mean, we could go on and get into the details about this, about the battles that are fought and, and show the comparisons. In the interest of time, however, I'm just going to leave it there. But I would recommend... Uh, for more information about this last Roman emperor and the Mahdi, uh, the paper, The Last Roman Emperor and the Mahdi by Andras Kraft. And there is some other stuff in the scholarly community that uh, uh, I am surprised to realize has been out there for some time and uh, just never even picked up on it. So I've got a lot of books and stuff ordered to try to figure out more about this, and I'm going to be digging a lot more. It's kind of difficult to to do to find all this apocalyptic uh, material in one place in order to do good searches. So right now it's kind of going slow uh, for me. 
But uh, anyway, I, I think right now what I'd like to do is discuss a little bit about if this is true, what does it mean for the Islamic Antichrist theory? What good does it do to point out that Islamic eschatology is just sort of badly plagiarized uh, material from uh, fake Christian writings in in early Syria? I mean, what good does it do to show how ridiculous their eschatology is and, and what it's it's ultimately based on? And I would say that by seeing that, it demystifies Islamic eschatology, which is a powerful argument against the argument that, you know, the Islamic Antichrist theory people present, which is that, uh, you know, the Mahdi is going to be the Antichrist, Isa is going to be the false prophet, the Dajjal is going to be the return of the real Christ. Because when you see it for what it is, there's absolutely no reason to expect any of that stuff to happen. I think that when when people are presented with that argument, they kind of see Islamic eschatology as, you know, uh, something that Satan has done, has given some kind of some kind of false prophecy that will benefit him. Um, and so, in in a sense, though they see it as a satanic prophecy, they also kind of give it weight as a real prophecy that there really is going to be a fake Jesus that comes back and tries to make everybody Muslim. And that's just not necessary any more than it's necessary to look at something that Joseph Smith of the Mormons said is going to happen in the end times and assume that it's got to be true. And so we all need to be prepared for the Mormon eschatology to come true because, because, you know, some guy said it. Um, So in doing so, I think it, I think it demystifies it and releases us from the power of that argument of of Islamic eschatology and its correlation to biblical eschatology. There is no reason to expect a fake Jesus to come back and 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 try to make everybody Muslim. That's just it's just not going to happen. And once you see the how they came up with these ideas, it makes it a lot uh, uh, easier to to do that. I think that ultimately the real questions about this issue and trying to debunk the Islamic Antichrist theory has to be about debunking the arguments that people make from Scripture. Um, like, you know, they try to say that Isaiah says that the Antichrist is going to be Assyrian and Micah 5 says it and all this stuff. So that's why I put out stuff like the Will the Antichrist Be an Assyrian video that I mentioned earlier. And so a big part of this project is going to be mostly dealing with those kinds of arguments, the the arguments that people try to make from Scripture saying that the Antichrist will be Islamic. But this this particular idea that the Islamic eschatology as an argument for the Islamic Antichrist um, needs to be dealt with, too. I would be really interested to hear from anybody out there that after hearing this podcast and agreeing with it, uh, to whatever extent, you still believe in the Islamic Antichrist theory. In other words, you still believe that the Mahdi figure is is going to be the Antichrist, that there's going to be a Mahdi, and he's going to be the Antichrist. There's going to be a return of Isa, and he's going to be the false prophet. And there's going to be a Dajjal, and he's going to be the return of, of uh, uh, the real Jesus. If you still believe that paradigm after hearing this, I want to hear from you not to to goad you or whatever, I want to hear from you to know what more I have to do. How do you interpret what I've just said? How would you, um, what would you say to dismiss this information? 
I'm expecting you would say something like, uh, yes, they, they, they probably did steal all this information from that early apocalyptic literature, but dot, 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 that's what I want to know. So if you're still in that camp, I need to know what where I need to take this particular section further to to make it uh, what needs to be discovered or what more needs to be considered or argued to 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 make a convincing argument about this issue. Okay, I think that about wraps up this particular episode. Um, I want to remind you about the videos that are out there: the how to get out of a spiritual slump using a keystone habit. Uh, the Gospel is Good News, Kinetic Typography, Sermon Jam, and Will the Antichrist Be an Assyrian? So you can check those out at the website NowhereToRunRadio.com. And as always, you can contact me at the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can email me at Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at BibleProphecyTalk.com, especially if you fall into the category that I just mentioned that I'd like to hear from. All right, thanks to everybody, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.